So turn to Joshua chapter 13 first, and I'm reading verses 1 to 7, and then we'll turn over to Joshua 14 to read uh, there verses 1 to 5. Joshua 13, verse 1. Now Joshua was old, advanced in years. And the Lord said to him, You are old, advanced in years, and there remains very much land yet to be possessed. This is the land that yet remains, all the territory of the Philistines, and all of the Geshurites from Seor, which is east of Egypt, as far as the border of Ekron northward, which is counted as Canaanite. The five lords of the Philistines, the Gazites, the Ashadites, the Ashkelonites, and all the Gittites and the Akronites, also the Avites from the south, all the land of the Canaanites, and Mira that belongs to the Sidonians as far as Aphek, to the border of the Amorites, the land of the Gebelites, all Lebanon toward the sunrise from Baal Gad below Mount Hermon as far as the entrance to Hamath, all the inhabitants of the mountains from Lebanon as far as the brook Misrephath, and all the Sidonians. Them I will drive out from before the children of Israel, only divide it by lot to Israel as an inheritance as I have commanded you. Now, therefore, divide this land as an inheritance to the nine tribes and half the tribe of Manasseh. Chapter 14, verses 1 to 5. These are the areas which the children of Israel inherited in the land of Canaan, which Eleazar the priest, Joshua the son of Nun, and the heads of the fathers of the tribes of the children of Israel distributed as an inheritance to them. Their inheritance was by lot, as the Lord had commanded by the hand of Moses, for the nine tribes and the half-tribe. For Moses had given the inheritance of the two tribes and the half-tribe on the other side of the Jordan, but to the Levites he had given no inheritance among them. For the children of Joseph were two tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim, and they gave no part to the Levites in the land, except cities to dwell in, with their common lands for their livestock and their property. As the Lord had commanded Moses, so the children of Israel did, and they divided the land. And there is God's holy and errant word. As we read it, may he bring instruction to our souls in the power of his spirit. You know, there are, as I'm sure you're aware, if you've ever tried to read through the Bible in any fashion, whether it's in a year or it takes you two years, there are certain parts of Scripture that we really want to buzz through really quickly. And chapters 13 to 19, I think, are some of those basic chapters. When you start reading it, you'll notice a repetition. It'll speak about a land allotted, an inheritance given uh, to people, and each one of the tribes are discussed in this manner, them each one receiving their inheritance. And you might think this is going on pretty much like 3,000 plus years ago. What in the world does it have to do with the church today? What does it have to do even with Israel today? 
some dispensationalists would believe that Israel must become a nation again and, uh, and receive their inheritance all over again. Is it pointing to that? Uh, we resoundly say no. It's pointing to something else. And one of the things to bear in mind when you're reading these words and when you're reading these chapters is to fix your mind and thought of the inheritance that is beyond the land itself. An inheritance that is eternal and an inheritance that we are hoping for. Because even in Joshua's time, this was but for them a prophecy and a shadow of the greater inheritance that would come. They didn't understand the fullness of that prophecy and shadow, but they understood there was more beyond the land than what they, they were just receiving in that time. And so do we. We understand that our life in this world is not a life that is marked by how much we prosper in the land. Our life in this world is marked by how we live for God's kingdom. How we pursue that kingdom. How we pursue that righteousness of God. How we lay hold of that hope of glory that is ours. Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, 24... That we are saved in this hope. What is that hope? What, what is it that we have and lay hold of as our eternal hope? It's a hope that we cannot see. And yet it is a hope that we eagerly wait for with a perseverance that most of the world looks at and, and, and thinks uh, you're crazy. Or as my kids like the word that I use most often now, you're nutty. There's something wrong with you. What is that hope? And that hope that we have laid hold of for us by Christ Jesus, and that hope that Christ Jesus has laid hold of us for, it's one and the same, is that hope of eternal glory with our God. The glory of Jesus Christ that will be revealed in us. Romans 8, 18. There is a glory waiting for us that we are pressing on. That we ourselves are running a race that we are eager to win and grab hold of. And that glory of Jesus Christ that will be revealed into us is at least these three wondrous things that we can only imagine in the weaknesses of our flesh in this side of glory. And that is, first of all, the hope of eternal life. And what that means for us. The hope of eternal life where we are freed from the presence of sin and death. Doesn't that I, I tell you, nothing more excites me. That alone, to me, is one of the glories that I am yearning for, where I will be free from the presence of sin and the death it brings. You know, you, you've heard it before, congregation. It's my favorite line in that hymn, When this passing world is done. We probably should have sung it tonight. When I stand before thee and love thee with an unsinning heart, you imagine to love God with no sin attached to it. The hope of eternal life. The hope of 
freedom from the presence of sin, the hope of abiding in the presence of God for all eternity, the hope of life. And we are told that that hope is an assured confidence for us to have even now. It's not something, as, as you hear a lot of other people say when you ask them, uh, where are you going for this summer? Well, we hope to go here on this uh, vacation if everything works well. It's a, it's a kind of hope that you know may not happen because other circumstances can affect it. That's not the kind of hope we have. We have a hope that is an assured confidence in the promises of God because this eternal glory, this freedom from the presence of sin and death, this abiding in the presence of God for all eternity is something that has been sealed to us by the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel work. Think of the words of 1 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4. One of the great blessings we give to God from our hearts. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his abundant mercy, has begotten us again to what? To a living hope. A living hope. Not a dead hope, not a hope-so hope, a living hope, a true and lively hope that now gives life to us, this side of glory. A living hope that is ours through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. An inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, that is reserved in heaven for you now. Why do I speak about hope? Because our hope is in that inheritance that Christ has laid hold of for us now. We have an inheritance. I don't know if any of you have yet ever inherited something from a parent or from a loved one who has died. Uh, Joanne did. Uh, it's a cabinet down in my office. I, I took it. <laughs> Something about inheritances, sometimes you don't get to keep them, but it's now in my office. But it's in our home, and it's just something that when her grandmother passed away was handed down. Others haven't inherited large sums of money. Uh, but when you think about those inheritances, we understand they're very temporal, don't, don't we? They come and go like the wind. A generation can ruin a well-established inheritance that went on for several generations. Uh, things can happen that uh, the inheritance gets lost to no fault of anyone except for the providence of God. The things that we inherit of the earth are very temporal. But we, what we have and what we are hopeful in Christ for is an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled. It's an inheritance that in no way can, can be stolen or degraded in any fashion. It can't be lost. It can't be marred or defiled by anything. It does not fade away. It's kept for us. And that's why it is an assured confidence. 
Now, with all of that in mind, we dwell, uh, delve into chapters 13 to 19. Uh, we're not going to cover it all tonight. Next week, we'll, we'll do a little bit more in this. But, but chapters 13 to 19 are all about Israel receiving the inheritance of the land as it is allotted to them in God's providence, as it is divided amongst the nine and a half tribes plus the two and a half tribes that already received their inheritance on the other side of the Jordan. Now, don't lose sight of the overall theme of Joshua. Remember that first message? I'm testing you. Letting your thoughts go. What was the first message about when we started Joshua? Uh, I know that was 18 sermons ago. The title, Standing on the Promises. And, and Joshua is all about those promises made to Abraham that are now being fulfilled under Joshua. The fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham to give to his descendants the land of Canaan. For 450 years, Israel waited to receive that promise. Some of them, no doubt, forgot about it. As we know in in the book of Numbers, that one generation that should have laid hold of it refused to because they feared that they could not take the nations that dwelt in the land. They disbelieved God and in their lack of faith, they were unable to acquire that inheritance. But notice that the sin of Israel, the sin of that generation even our sins does not in any way corrupt the promise of God. He promised the descendants of Abraham, the land of Canaan, and here in the book of Joshua, those promises are being fulfilled and met. God has been faithful. Now thank we all our God. That's a hymn about Praising God for his faithfulness and fulfilling what he promised. And and when you see that part of scripture unfolding, how it begins to relate to us in the church today, is just as God promised Abraham to bring through him a blessing to all of the earth, and under Joshua the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel are met. Well, what do we know about that name Joshua? It means in the Greek, Jesus. It's pointing and shadowing forward to Jesus who comes and who enables the promises of God to deliver his people from sins, to bring them into eternity and to the glory of God. The promises of God being fulfilled. Genesis 3.15, being fulfilled. I will send forth the son of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. I will send forth the seed of Abraham who will bring forth the blessing of salvation to all the nations of the earth. I will send forth the son of David who will be a king who will sit on the throne of my kingdom forever. Establish the kingdom of God on the earth. Jesus is the one who comes and fulfills all those promises of God. And it's a hard journey 
For 450 years, Israel were slaves and wanderers waiting for this promise to be fulfilled. It's not an easy life in this world. (laughs) Don't be deceived. Some of you, I remember when I was your age, what was being touted was Freedom 55. (laughs) And now it's Burden 2020. (laughs) You know, it doesn't work, this side of glory. And yet now, within a generation... Under Joshua, they had conquered and taken over the land of Canaan. The promise of God had been realized. But even though that promise of God had been realized, a far greater promise was yet to be received. There's still more that goes beyond this. And that's why if you look at the points, you see there's two points to this evening's message, the temporal inheritance and the eternal inheritance, that the temporal is pointing to the eternal. And I want us to to see aspects of that temporal inheritance that we are to be keenly aware of, because as God has promised us, uh, as we see uh, in many of the Psalms and, and in many parts of Scripture, he's promised blessing to his people. But yet, we don't always experience that blessing as it seems to be written in Scripture. Why? Because God's blessings always have an eternal perspective to them. And we enjoy the temporal nature of those blessings to some degree, more or less, in accordance with God's providence. They're always pointing forward to the greater. And the same here is with Israel. They are receiving a temporal inheritance. Notice, if you will, how if you look at verse 1 of, of chapter 13. Notice how this mimics the very first chapter and the very first two verses of the chapter. Joshua was old and advanced in years, and the Lord said to him, you are old and advanced in years. <laughs> how to state the obvious. But you go all the way back to the very beginning of the book, chapter 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass the Lord spoke to Joshua and said, Moses, my servant, is dead. Well, I can see that. (laughs) He's died. And and God is saying to Israel, Joshua, he's old. (laughs) He doesn't have many days left. And you're receiving your inheritance. What should that strike to your thoughts? You're going to die. (laughs) As as, As much as you may look and plan your life, understand the temporal nature of your life, this side of glory. It's temporary. (laughs) And and how much stock do you put, and, and this isn't, this isn't uh, something that would uh, verify or vilify, uh, you know, how much time and energy we put into things. But how much stock do you put into what you possess in this life? And you don't realize how temporary it is. Moses and Joshua were dying men. And, and when you think about it with these two men, the two great leaders of Israel... 
Moses didn't even get to partake in that earthly inheritance. And Joshua spent all his time in war, getting it ready for Israel to participate in, and he's going to die just as he receives it. How much enjoyment did they get from their inheritance? It's temporal. And yet Israel is inheriting land, a real people receiving and possessing real land. We are introduced to the truth that they haven't possessed it all yet. There remained very much land yet to be possessed, but it was theirs. But it was theirs in a very temporal manner. And I'm going to define that word for you, temporal. What does it mean? It means it's fleeting, temporary, earthly. And in our circumstances, it's sin-infected. <laughs> it's sin-infected. Meaning even the nature of their possession of this inheritance was infected by their sinfulness. It's temporal. Now that's not saying that it wasn't a glorious gift. Of course it was a gift. But even in giving it as a gift, what do we understand about the earth and the land and all that is in it? Does it belong to us? No. Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and all its fullness As full as it is full, it is the Lord's. (laughs) Don't forget the next part. The world and those who dwell therein. Our lives belong to God. So everything of this world belongs to the Lord. Our lives belong to the Lord. This side of glory, it's temporal. It's earthly. It's fleeting. It's sin-infected. Not God and not the giving of His gift, but us and our apprehension of these things. I find find it very uh, ironic and I dare to say hypocritical here in Canada how many uh, ceremonial activities now begin with that native land acknowledgement. You know why that's wrong? And you know why the churches should not be doing that? When, especially when we gather and worship our God and our Lord? Because they are attributing the possession of this land to them and their care and hereditary uh, aspect to the land. That's idolatrous. It's like saying, they own the land. And we as God's people understand the greater truth. No one owns the land. God gives. God takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We live with that understanding. Even in our own lives. Even in the things that we possess. Even in the families that we possess. Look what happened to Job. In the space of a very few short days. Lost every possession he had. He lost all his financial well-being. He lost all his children. Everything in a moment. 
He had to lay down in those ashes in sackcloth in his mourning to worship God and to say, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now say that without crying. That's the nature of anything we receive from God as a gift this side of glory. And, and in making this clear to Israel that they were inheriting, that's the word that's used, they were being gifted something they didn't earn. What was the fundamental point that Israel needed to understand? That it was the Lord their God that gave this to them. I mean, we even see it here that even with all of the nations, not nations, all of the kingdoms that are yet to to be uh, eradicated from the land of promise, you get down to verse 6, and what does the Lord say there at the end of it? He says, I will drive them out from before you. I'm doing this work so that you can receive the blessing that I want to give to you. And Israel continued to forget that it was the Lord their God that gave them this land. It was the Lord their God whose presence and power defeated the kingdoms and whose grace gave to them that which they did not earn or deserve. Children, you ever wonder why three times a day or however many times you sit at the dinner table to eat that you begin by saying grace? Why do you do that? Because we are acknowledging that the food we have on our table is a gift from God. I heard a statistic that last year over 100,000 people a month were starving to death. Isn't that amazing? And I mean in that sense of wow. And it's not because there's a lack of food in the earth. The greed and sinfulness of men keeps and hoards and wastes. When we say grace, what we are acknowledging, God, you've given us this daily bread, which is why after you say grace, it's the worst thing you can do to say, I don't like this. (laughs) But we do, don't we? Now, this isn't cooked well. We find something wrong. And, 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 but I'm just saying that to show you just how sin attaches itself to things so quickly. But even as God gave it to Israel as a temporal inheritance, God had an expectation of Israel to be glorifying him in the land. Even in all their weakness. And it's interesting if you were to move along to chapter 18. And get there in verses 1 and 2. God's expectation in giving Israel the land was that they should treat it as though they were Adam placed in the Garden of Eden. And given that royal command to now subdue the earth and and exercise dominion over it to my glory. In chapter 18, verses 1 and 2, the whole congregation of Israel assembled together at Shiloh. Shiloh, it's the first time it's mentioned. 
But Shiloh now becomes the place where the tabernacle of meeting is set up. If you look on a map, it's at the very center of the land of Canaan. And God wanted Israel to see that here he would dwell in the very heart of the land for all of the tribes of Israel to be surrounding this city. And here they were to dwell with their God. And they were given the land with this purpose. Look, look at the word that's, that's there. Um, verse, uh, the end of verse 1. And the land was subdued before them. But there were other tribes that had yet to take and lay hold of their inheritance. You, you, you go back to Genesis 1. And again, God's expectation of his people, of his church today. Even as God placed Adam in the Garden of Eden to be a steward to the glory of God, so God now placed Israel in this land to be a steward of his kingdom before the nations. And God had blessed them. He had subdued the nation so that they could live in this land in peace with him. So that they could exercise a dominion that would glorify him among the nations. Think about the church. Think about your life and relationship to the church, in the church. Why are we a church? If not to be a light and lampstand of the kingdom of God in this city. To serve him. And the last thing, so it, it, it's temporal in this nature. It, it was a gift. And God had expectations. It's temporal in this way too. It is something that it could be lost. In fact, we know it will be lost. In fact, when you read Leviticus, you, you see that even as God promised them the land and was leading them to the land that they would inherit, he knew that they could lose their inheritance due to debt and other issues, appropriation uh, by the king, all of these things. And, and God made provisions so that every household would not lose their inheritance forever. He provided that every seven years it would be returned to them and, and every 50 years there would be a cancellation of all debt so that they could all be free to possess the land again. He did all of that. But even here in chapter 18, we read the sluggishness of Israel to lay hold of what they possessed. <laughs> To honor God with what they had been given. And it would take about 400 years for the entirety of the land to become Israel's. We're in and around here at this point about 1400 BC, give or take maybe a decade. And then you have the book of Judges that covers about 350 years. And then you have the rule of King Saul, which is another 40 years. And it's not until King David... That the whole of the nations are subdued and eradicated from the land of Israel. Over four centuries waiting to inherit the promise. Over four centuries to actually receive the fullness of the promise. And then 400 years after David, they lose it. 
because of idolatry and infidelity to God. It was a temporal inheritance. And and that ought to make you mindful, dear Christians, that whatever prosperity you enjoy in this temporal life, whatever it is, whether you compare yourself to others and see yourself richer than the poor man or poorer than the rich man, (laughs) riches and wealth and prosperity is a very relative thing. You need to understand whatever level of prosperity, it's a gift from God. A gift that you are to be contented and enjoying and glorifying him in. You've received it by grace. Not because you necessarily deserve it or because you had a proudness at business that enabled you to prosper. Some of that may be true. As we know today, easy come, easy go. And just to prepare some of you young people in case you don't realize it, by the time you start working full-time, the government will take 50% of what you make. The Lord will ask for another 10%. (laughs) And suddenly your share just becomes increasingly small. It's temporal. And what is to be on your heart is eternity. Ecclesiastes 3.11, God has set eternity. On our hearts. And for us as believers, that is to be a primary focus. I've always appreciated Ligonier's uh, motto right now counts forever. <laughs> it counts forever. And that's the second thing that very quickly we want to see here that this was but prophecy and shadow, even for Israel in this time of the eternal inheritance. Like all things here, and I don't want to take away from the fulfillment of those promises in Joshua's time and for Israel, there still was a future fulfillment of what was being shadowed here in uh, Joshua and Israel laying hold of the land. This was purposed to point Israel forward to the fulfillment and reality and guaranteed inheritance that would come in Christ. And you might say, well, well, I don't see that in here. Well, this is where the New Testament tells us these truths. That even for Abraham, what does Hebrews 11.10 tell us about Abraham's expectation? Turn there. Hebrews 11. Uh, beginning at, at verse 8, Hebrews 11, verses 8 to 10. What was Abraham's expectation? That just because we don't necessarily read it, we understand that God had spoken to him of the promises. How it's recorded is for us to see how it relates to Jesus. But there was more said to Abraham that he knew, perhaps didn't understand in all its fullness, But we are told here in Hebrews 8 to 10, by faith Abraham, when he was called to go out of the place which he would receive as an inheritance, he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. Why? For he waited for the city which has foundations 
whose builder and maker is God. He knew there was more to it. And you can bet he made sure that Isaac and Jacob and Moses would have made sure to Israel. There's more to this. And there certainly was. When you read Deuteronomy, God said you're going to have a king one day. And 400 years later, Israel says, we want a king, but we want a king like the nations around us. Not a king that God wants. And they got a king like the nations around them. And for another 40 years, they lived in subjection. Not just to their king, but to the terrors of the nations around them. Until David comes, a king after his own. There was always more for them. And Abraham looked at this land and recognized temporary it is. But thank you, God, because it's pointing us to that eternal inheritance that you have made and fashioned for us in Christ. We're receiving a land, but you know, when the Lord comes in power and glory, we'll be receiving a kingdom that is forever. (laughs) And that's where our hearts are, are to be set. You get to Revelation 21. And this is the marvelous thing. Because it reflects the promise made to Abraham in Genesis 17 when the sign of the covenant, the sign of circumcision was given to him. But you come here to Revelation 21, verses 1 to 3. And what does he say there? He says, I saw a new heaven, a new earth. God is going to take this world and refashion it. For eternity. And everything that belongs to the sinful nature of this world is going to be burned away. Fire of God's judgment and refashioned for glory. A new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth passed away. And there's no more sea saw this holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, uh, out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And here it is, verse 3. And I heard a loud voice saying, Behold, again, pointing back to the tabernacle that was erected in Shiloh, the dwelling place of God on earth in the midst of his people. I saw the tabernacle of God is with men He will dwell with them. They shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Hallelujah. Do you know what he said to Abraham when he gave him the sign of the covenant? I will be your God. And you will be my people. And in that great and glorious and powerful day of the Lord when Jesus returns... That promise will be realized in all its glory. That's what we're waiting for. There's an eternal focus to this. And that's why when you come to Matthew 5, and if you will, just turn one last passage here. Psalm 37, verses 9 to 11. Matthew 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. You know you... You're going to inherit the earth. Now, does he mean this earth that we see with our physical eyes right now? No. He means the earth that will be refashioned for glory. 
where God's kingdom alone abides upon it, and where God can dwell with us and us with him in absolute purity. But you know what Psalm 37 has to say about that in relation to how we live on the earth now? Is that, yes, there's evil all around us, but don't fret. Are you worried about kingdoms and nations that rise up and commit grievous, wicked evils? Don't fret. Evildoers, verse 9, will be cut off. Those who wait on the Lord will inherit the earth. Yet a little while and the wicked will be no more. Indeed, you will look carefully for his place, but it shall be no more. But the meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of what? Peace. (laughs) There's coming a day when we will experience a peace in the presence of God like we can't even imagine. Where our lives will be at rest and freed from the burdens and that taskmaster of sin in all its fullness where death will be no more. We will know each other and actually love each other without even a sinful thought. Marvelous. The meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. We will have peace with God. We have it now in Jesus Christ. And yet, that peace with God gets interrupted by sin and challenges and issues, doesn't it? That's all going to be gone. And that's the neat thing when coming back to our text in verse four, uh, chapter 14, verse 1, when, when we read here of how Joshua and Eliezer, the priest, divided the land and they gave Israel their inheritance. Again, this, this points us to the Lord Jesus and his wonderful words to his disciples about the anxiety that was taking over their hearts and that knowledge that they would fail their Lord and all the worry and the troubles that were filling in their minds. And he comes and he says to them, John 14, what does he say? Don't let your hearts be troubled. Why? Because I am going to prepare a place for you that where I am, you will be also. Doesn't that speak peace to your soul right now? The troubles of life here can be overwhelming. Financial troubles, look, I pray you don't go through it, young people. They can be some of the most stressful things in your life. How do you make ends meet? Social troubles. Teenagers who rebel. There is a lot to bring anxiety into your life promises of God to you are eternal. Sealed in Christ, I will be God to you and to your children. Do not let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. I'm preparing a place where I am. You may be and I'm coming back to receive you to myself. That's what we await. That's the eternal inheritance that these things prophesy and shadow. Set that upon your heart. Know the Lord Jesus. Trust in him. He is our inheritance.